Welcome to Sustainable Non-Fungible Talk. This episode was recorded on September 15th, 2022. I'm your host, Ling Ning. Today, I'm here with our guest, David Packman. David is the CEO and founder of Shintai, which is an institutional-grade digital asset technology for capital markets. Shintai was launched in 2018. Within year one, it has over 250 million trade volume. Wow, that's super impressive. Hi, David. It's a great honor to have you here today. So could you share with our listeners your background and the path leads you to start Shintai? Yeah, no, my pleasure to be on today. Thank you. That, that's right. Yeah, no, David Packham, and I, I have a background actually in financial services. I'd spent the best part of 20 years working for a lot of the world's larger banks and asset managers. I actually started out my, my career out of university in coding. So I was uh, coding in Java and .NET and, uh, and JavaScript, the, the languages of the day back then. And I really at the time wanted to get into e-commerce. It was the big thing. And the dot-com boom would just end And I was dead set on that. Somehow or other though, money always drives these things. Uh, my employer told me, no, you're going into financial services and you can do all the same stuff there and give it a try. And that was really how I ended up in, in financial services. It wasn't because it was the passion choice. It was the, uh, it was the career choice that was given to me. But, but that really led me to obviously go into a career that was very interesting. And by about the time that the 2008-9 fresh happened, I, I was reevaluating my life choices to some extent. It, it was very clear the industry didn't necessarily fit with serving the public properly, with investors properly, and just wasn't functioning very well. And I was also by that point very aware of how inefficient it was and how many people I knew who were incredibly smart were spending their entire lives doing a job that frankly they shouldn't have to do if the system was better designed. So that led to me really exp exploring what I exited uh, another in 2016. What, how do I leverage my background in, in finance and technology to do something that could be more innovative and disruptive and interesting? And blockchain technology had really caught my eye at that point. And particularly Ethereum, which on well, the day after the merge is, is more relevant now. Back then it was very primitive. It was only a couple of years old and it, it didn't really scale at all. It didn't have a path to scaling that was meaningful. And, uh, and so I found another protocol to build upon that was going to be highly scalable. It was brand new. It's actually now called Antelope, the, uh, the underlying tech stack that Chentai has built on top of, which is an open source protocol. And yeah, I pulled together the initial team at the start of 2018, found a couple of really smart guys. One's a physicist and he's the CTO, Phil Hamnett. And uh, the other one's got, got a background in clinical psychology and that's Ryan Betham. They bring something completely different to the table as CTO and CEO, and they're the kind of core base of the founding team. Um, yeah, absolutely. We, our aim initially, as per your intro, was to actually build a full on-chain trading system that could actually enable the exchange of utility of tokens. So you could lend them out, get money back. And that was the initial use case you talked about that did this quite impressive early trade. But it became pretty clear to us that beyond that, it was all about actually enabling innovation. And what does that mean? It means you've got lots of people all trying to do the same thing over and over again. And that means... You're going to be doing issuance. You're going to need some sort of ability to trade that asset you've actually deployed. And I come from a background of finance and knew that regulatory compliance was not going to be an optional. It was something that was going to need to be inherent in the design of, a, of something like this. And from the ground up, we built that out. And that's really the story of the last three years has been building this very complex in infrastructure that other people can now leverage. They can take it, white label it, plug into the APIs, 
and get on and build their businesses and disrupt industries. And, and the good news about that from our perspective is that it's good enough to either support entrepreneurs right up to the largest financial institutions. So we've got something quite versatile and it, that, that kind of shows in the types of clients that we've got. But we can come on to that maybe further down the line. Yeah, thank you, David. Yeah, I like how you blend your background first in the tech side, on the coding side, and your financial service background in, into bring the new venture to life. And I think it makes a lot of sense with your background. Yeah, so basically, you survived the crypto crash, the crypto winter 2018, and that's pretty much the year Shintai was born, right? But they often say this, that crypto winters are for building. And I right. would agree with that in the sense that when we found it, it was something of a, yeah, a gauntlet of fire in the sense that there was no capital. We really had to innovate and just knuckle down. And frankly, if you're not sincere at that point, you're going to walk away because of lack of money and so on. A lot of the team were on half wages, barely able to just cover your basic living costs. And you're doing it for the sheer passion of, I believe in what I'm doing, and I believe we'll find a path to success. And that's definitely something from an entrepreneurial point of view, I think should resonate to anybody who's thinking about maybe doing something, which is you never have a perfect time to set up a business with a clear path to just an easy deployment. It's a continuous process of we have a longer term vision and we're going to have a large range of challenges along the way. We mm -hmm. simply one by one methodically work through how we're going to resolve those. Yeah, it was a very interesting time to set up and it was, a, it was definitely, I'm not going to lie, it was a tough two or three years until we closed out our seed round last year. Yeah. Yeah, that's very well said. I think that's like a spirit a lot of young founders or upcoming founders should consider. They've had it. Uh, a lot of the young ones have had a great couple of years, haven't they? They've I know, been in right? Kind of boom market. They're having their first crypto winter. They're in for a bit of a shock, some of them, for sure. It's going to be a very interesting period. Yeah, so I was curious. Now, so when you are watching all the like Bitcoin sell-offs and then pretty much spread to all the cryptocurrency in 2018, how does that, did that actually change at all your vision about Shintai? And if it did, how did it impact? Yeah, the volatility and the change in the sector, it did a couple of things, actually. It didn't change the vision so much as it, it partly shaped the vision. So at the time, we, DeFi wasn't even a term. When we deployed the first ever full on-chain order management system and platform, and we gave these users on the EOS network this ability to take their network tokens and lend them to other people to run on-chain applications, and they would get yield back in exchange, leasing, because Shintai means lease in Japanese. That was actually the first DeFi product, really. It didn't exist as a word, as a term even. And then obviously you look at the last cycle and you've seen all these products where yield bearing tokens, what became known as farming, kicks in. This was exactly the same thing, except we did it two, two and a half years before any of that was even built. And I guess looking back, we didn't really, any of us, I think, realize how innovative this type of stuff was. But the, the big difference is that ours was built to serve a real world purpose. It was there to, to service the network. And as, the, as its requirements went up, you needed to do more leasing of these tokens. That's the problem with the DeFi sector that in the last cycle is that it wasn't serving useful purposes very often. It was, it was circular economics that didn't necessarily do that. And we saw the same problem with the ICO boom in 2017 and the cut crashed in 2018, which is you saw issuances taking place that didn't necessarily need to happen, where there wasn't a solid model for the token where well, there wasn't necessarily even a need for a token. It was really a kind of fundraising mechanism. And, uh, and obviously, when you dug under the surface of that and had a bit of a look underneath, half of them didn't have a purpose and, if, and, and ended up being value valueless when the market had time to really evaluate them properly. So what, of course, happened then is the SEC, uh, particularly in the US, 
stepped in and started prosecuting these companies and saying, look, this is actually a security. Let's not take the piss here. It basically is a security in a, in everything but name. And in many cases, you completely fundamentally misrepresented this to retail investors. So for us, this was good because it enabled us to say our idea about building out a compliance engine that can enforce rules around these markets and make sure that if you need to segregate and say ban US or ban China from being able to participate, yeah, there's going to be a need for this, clearly. So actually for us, it was formative. It helped reinforce that idea that, yes, it, it's there is going to be a need for compliance, whether people realize it or not. And and it meant that we just put that front and center in the inherent design of what we were going to build out during that, that next two-year period. Yeah, I think regulation has been like a debate among the crypto world. I think a lot of people have the spirit like Web3 shouldn't be regulated. But I think for you guys, you work with a lot of regulated assets. It's actually like a, like a very important. But so I want to get your opinion, like why our regulation is so important for the digital asset market or the kind of asset that you are working with and then how important it is for the overall blockchain world. Firstly, just to say, to, to add to your point, yeah, I completely sympathize with the uh, with the DGNs, the CryptoPunks view of not wanting to be centrally regulated by necessarily some centralized government bodies. And the reason for that is that if you look historically at a lot of the rules they pass, they don't always pass good rules or that necessarily are fair in the sense of very often you'll see rules where some of the best investment opportunities are restricted from retail level. And that's usually under the fact that it's to protect retail investors. And they're not necessarily wrong in that you, every time we see the crypto industry come up with a way of engaging the retail level, they act like idiots and they overinvest and they lose a load of money and they get done by scams and they become degen gamblers. So they're, they're not wrong on this element, but actually I am a great believer too in the long term, some of the best decentralized network systems over time will be enforced with a form of code being inherent in the smart contract as a governance mechanism. And so that for me is the bit, one of the big challenges for the crypto sector to, to grab the ball by the horns and work out how to do. Because a well-designed system in theory should be able to self-balance. It will have components like anti-fragility built in, which means it responds and changes its rules based on certain parameters and attacks. And a really well-designed system like that could become a viable option to regulation one day. But let's go back to reality, which is, yeah, none of that exists right now. It's never been built out and it's never been built out in a way that works. That The long-term vision, great, go for it. But in the meantime, if we're all interested in a world of bringing this underlying blockchain technology and being able to interface the DeFi system to the real world system and for them to coexist and operate, and we actually want to disrupt industries in a variety of ways like carbon and hydrogen and real, then you're going to have to also accept that you can't operate outside the realms of the laws and the rules we operate in. And ask yourself a general question, and this is maybe for the listeners too, which is what happens in a world where we have absolutely no rules? Society has rules all over the place for a variety of reasons. And whenever we remove them, we realize generally why a lot of them were put in place. And so that is the broad premise behind why we need to have regulatory compliance in the digital assets now. Most of the time, it's to provide real world protections for people investing in those you need to be able to recover your assets. You, you can't have 300 million of assets disappearing because of a private key, for example. And so those for me are some inherent things behind this generally. It's something of a philosophical discussion. It, it can be viewed in multiple different ways. But for us, we're really about, listen, 
by, by enabling our partners and clients to actually be able to be on the right side of compliance, great. They can do that and now they can build their business, disrupt it and, and grow something new out and innovate. So for us, it's really a necessary evil, as it were, to be able to... Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's well said. Yeah, so you did mention a little bit of the kind of asset you work with, like carbon, real estate. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting one for this is is that it's such a diverse range of clients. They're in so many different geographical locations globally, and it's across so many different ideas that it's almost impossible for us right now to say... Who's your clients? Right. It's not just, say, financial institutions wanting to do securities, although we have now actually the capital market service license here in Singapore. So that's great. It means we are one of the few companies that actually can issue security tokens and other regulated assets for the first time. So for me, that's a really important step for the DeFi industry, which is that we're getting avenues now where we can do this for the first time as well. Yeah, some of the biggest ones that I'm seeing are definitely on the green, the green tech space. So people looking to disrupt the carbon credit industry or the carbon credit markets is a huge one. And the reason for that is if you think about the drivers behind this, there's a general acceptance on the macro political level that, that there is a need to reduce carbon emissions, right? Whether people want to debate all of this is irrelevant. That's the political consensus globally. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be a massive increase in the size of the carbon offset or credit market over the next 20 years. It's currently estimated to go from about a trillion dollars in size now to 50 trillion. So it's a massive, if you think about it from a business perspective, that alone is a very appealing avenue to go into. And um, then if you think about how broken the existing carbon credit market is, because you've got the resale of credits and the whole thing's corrupt and generally is broken, it lends itself extremely well, therefore, to a distributed ledger, i.e. blockchain technology. And so it's a, it's an obvious one to move on to utilizing blockchain technology where the issuance process becomes dynamic and easy. The burn mechanism is inherent the carbon offset. You sell it to someone, they want a carbon offset. It's going to burn all chain and everybody's going to be able to see this. Those mechanics really lend themselves perfectly to blockchain as a use case. And it's no surprise to me that we've got one client already and about another four that we're signing deals with who are using our technology as the underlying platform to build a business out on this. And then you've got others who have specialized and spent years building out this same underlying infrastructure just for this one use case as well. And that's really where we come in. Why build the same infrastructure over and over for these different use cases when it can simply be, you can utilize something else already, which is what we're, we're there to do. So that's a big one. Hydrogen is another one, which is, I think, going to be a huge growth area over the next three, three years or so. There's different types of hydrogen, but I won't go into the specifics, but again, Hydrogen is actually a very clean fuel, and therefore it's expected to be a big growth industry there. I think I talked about real estate briefly already. We do have a client based in Australia that we'll be doing work with, and the fractionalization of real estate is a very powerful example of where tokenization comes in. So there you've got the ability to take this an office block or an enormous shopping mall, or even down to the individual house level, and actually break that up into tokens, which represent almost a fraction of that makes it much more liquid with a secondary. It's quite a powerful way to disrupt the entire sector there. We've got bonds. We've got a client we'll be doing a very large bond issuance with later in the year through Singapore without licensing. We have a green tech client. We've got multiple funds trying to do fund issuances. We've got a couple of securities issuances we'll be doing. Yeah, the list goes on. And then you've got some that are a bit more out there, like we've got somebody in the horse racing industry that wants to tokenize racing horses as they relate to stable ownership. And it'll have flows of income that come from breeding rights and win winning rights. And if you think about it, that's crazy, right? But then remember that the horse racing industry is a multi-billion dollar global industry. And actually 
funding out of the syndicate that's currently syndicate based, the ownership of racing horses is a very illiquid, difficult thing. It's not very easy and very accessible. It, it, you know, it would, this is what you have to, you quickly realize with digital assets, they're so versatile, they can almost apply to anything. And to some extent, imagination is the only limiter. And I find that very exciting. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So do you actually, so does the customers come to you and then tell that, hey, I have this problem. And then can you guys design a product for it? Or you work out a few prototypes and then the customer comes along that way? Yeah, because we're on the pre-launch phase, they've been largely coming to us, exactly. And that's an interesting dynamic I hadn't expected, but I think it, it shows you how much activity is taking place in this sector globally. And I think it also shows that there's a definite need by companies to find technology partners that can help them get this stuff done. They can either spend a fortune building a lot of this in-house themselves, or they can find somebody else who's got that infrastructure to just get them, enable them to build their own business. And yeah, so a lot of it's just been organic approaches to date. Obviously, as we start to scale up, a big part of that with any business is you define out a sales pipeline and a strategy and a way you're going to outreach. And we're kicking that off too. I, I, we haven't talked much about the institutional finance side of this, but that is a big part of what we're doing as well. We are in a lot of talks with some of the larger financial institutions globally about that doing some really meaningful issuance type stuff with them. I would say the one thing about them is that they're more in the proof of concept stage still at the financial services sector. There's a very deep acceptance now, I think amongst them all that there is a definite need to, and there is an inevitability about the trend and move to digital assets. That's definitely inherent now in the industry. I would say there's no longer, it's not no longer even open for debate, but there is also a very much an internal struggle where they're not really sure about how to commit the funds and what they're going to do. And there's, they're still concerned about compliance and risk and reputational damage. And so most of them that we're talking to are really interested in doing a test issuance where they can make sure it all works properly and the mechanics and distributions work. And then they'll start thinking about now, how are we going to scale this up with our client base? And how does this fit into our vision for what we're going to do in digital assets? So that's the phase we're in. And I guess that says one thing really, which is we're all still really early in this sector. It's encouraging too, because I think we now have, as an industry, the infrastructure to actually support them in that journey. We can provide them with a way of doing this very quickly, very cheaply, where they can test all this out, get themselves comfortable with it, and they can move to that next level where we do see a mass move to tokenization digital assets of the financial services sector. And that's going to be great news for DeFi, whether they realize it or not yet. Yeah, so I was going to ask, so what's the next steps for Shintai? Where do you see yourself or the company in five years? Oh, in five years. That, that, that's a good one. I'll tell you what, it's hard to foresee for sure where we'll be in three years, never mind five. Five and years is a lot of time in the blockchain world. <laughs> so yeah, think of it like this. Five years ago was pretty much when I first got into crypto. It was around about 2016. Ethereum was trading at, at under $5 and Bitcoin was trading at about $1,000. So it gives you a general sense of just how much changes in those elements alone. I think generally the best way to look at this is what are the underlying trends in the industry? Because we're really going to be very focused on meeting the needs of our customers and executing to the best degree possible to, for that. And so we're here to be able to enable long-term everybody to become their own issuer and market operator of their own value, their own stores of value, which are issued as digital assets. That's the long-term goal I want to get to. But to get there, it's a series of steps. So the first target for this is definitely the institutional level and the big, bigger entrepreneurs where they've got a business concept, 
we're going to do this. But eventually it gets lower and lower this down to individuals being able to just log in with a free account into the platform and issue things out and deploy a secondary market in theory for it too. And I would, I think we can get to a point where content creators and others will be able to just do that dynamically. And we won't see this as the exclusive preserve that we currently do. Because if you look at the existing system, if you want to issue a bond right now, you're, you're basically limited by the fact that you have to go through a very exclusive group of banks they're going to cream three to seven percent of an issuance fee off you. They're, they're probably not going to have any kind of meaningful secondary capability. You're going to be doing OTC over the counter trading. So it's not going to be very easy to trade these bonds. And basically, it prices out any company under a massive size, like a billion dollar plus type valuations. It's not economical for them. So we're already with tokenization moving to a point where it becomes vastly more accessible. So I think when you look ahead at, say, the next three to five years, we're going to just see this bar of accessibility. This I hate to use the term democratization of access, but it's like an expansion of access to a more level playing field to, to a, a wider and wider group where more and more of us are going to be able to actually access this for the first time. Let me give you an example. You've got the podcast going. Let's say you wanted to commercialize it and fund down its development. And so you want to issue out either some ownership or you want to issue out a bond that you'll pay off with the profits from that. You can't do that right now. It's not commercial, but with digital assets, you can. And you'd be able to come along and simply say, great, we're going to go out to our viewers and listeners, and they're going to back us. And this, and we'll use Shentai's underlying technology to do that. And over time, we'll pay them X amount back as we as the bonds expire. And that helps us fund it out to achieve whatever. That's the type of innovation that's going to be possible with digital assets. And I think we'll start to become a norm in, in over the next three to five years. And that's a really exciting one because it enabled capital to be more efficiently allocated to, to smaller businesses too and entrepreneurs. And that can only be good for the long-term future of, of the economy. Yeah, I'm very looking forward for that day to come. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it is an interesting one though that there are definite risks around digital assets too. The obvious thing that we see is Whenever you were towards decentralization, it offers some major benefits related to censorship resistance and resilience and, and immutability very often too. What it trades off for that though, is the ability to make dynamic, rapid decision-making very often. That there is not a way for it to respond very well to changes in the environment around it to, to make changes. And if you do see changes being pushed through, Usually they're very centralized on that decentralized system because human beings, they operate in a structure where we typically centralize the decision making to make it more like dynamic. Look at it like this. In a democracy, everyone has a vote. So why don't we just have a, a, a system where for every single thing that needs to happen in the country, we all just have a big referendum on everything and we all have to go in every day and make a vote on it. The reason is it will be chaos. Right. And it wouldn't work, right? What you actually need are people who are elected representatives whose job is to make those decisions on our behalf. Hence, how gov government is meant to broadly work. And uh, yeah, I think that's one of the core challenges with all of this type of thing. Yeah, cool. Yeah, one question that we ask all our guest speakers, it's could you give us some examples how the blockchain technology can impact sustainability? I know you mentioned about the carbon credit. So is there like some other way you would envision the blockchain technology can make an impact? When you say sustainability, are you thinking from, a, from an ecological green perspective? That and as well, I would say from the social, from economic scale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, one of my passion project use cases for blockchain is actually, is actually micro lending. So the micro lending networks exist already globally, and that they're, they're designed to provide a way to provide relatively small amounts of capital to the third world, where they can't access 
conventional banking. And it enables them to fund out the construction of something for a business and the terms are reasonable and they've got an incredibly high rate of repayment. And they add massive value to the local economies there. And to me, being able to plug in and have the DeFi system, for example, fund out micro lending networks is an incredibly powerful social value add. And I think there'll be a lot of people in crypto who will be more than happy to lend out some of their crypto resources for five years at a reasonable interest rate with a, and it's obviously pulled. So there's a default rate of let's say 10%, but there's an interest rate of X and Y. So it nets out to this and they say, listen, I'll put it in the pool and it can serve a useful purpose. I get to feel good about what I'm doing with this small percentage of my portfolio and it's serving a massive social good. That alone is one just simple example for me of where you can see where this is going to potentially enhance that by making micro lending more, but really the, to answer it, there's almost no limits to how we could potentially enhance the way the world works. We talked about carbon already, but ultimately if you accept that the existing carbon credit market is broken fundamentally and is corrupt, a market you can't trust is therefore one that, that is generally not, um, should we say suboptimal. Yeah. There is another example of where you're going to end up with a trustworthy global market that everybody can put trust in. It's going to stop people from pretending they're sequestering carbon and managing to tick the box for all this and allow the market to function properly, which is a huge, powerful one to actually incentivize people to actually properly carbon offset and pay the cost if they don't. So for me, there's a variety of ways. And then we partly touched on this too also, I think, before, which is the ability to expand the access to things like funding for businesses or for them to be able to say, Actually, I've got a really innovative idea. I just need to leverage this technology in my own specific way to actually get out and disrupt an industry or build a new business. And all of that's possible with digital assets. And actually, a lot of it's possible with what we've been building. But so for me, it's a range of things. I think it's an incredibly powerful tool that really is now being put in the hands of the innovators globally. And it's very much going to be down to them to come up with the ideas and push through with them. But we've built out now the tools as an as a industry, I think, to enable them to get on and do this. So it's really about them not replicating the mistakes of the last DeFi boom. Circular economics and farming, inflation-driven yields that are really clearly unsustainable. It's about how do we serve real-world economic value-add as the core driver behind whatever's being built, and then the rest flows from that. But it has to have that at the core of it for it to, for it to be sustainable. At least that's my view. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So actually, you already touched upon my last question, which is that we are now in a bear market again, since Yay. we have survived the previous one. <laughs> I <laughs> guess this one us. is not as bad. <laughs> so, no, it's yeah. definitely not as bad. No, for us, yeah, no, bear markets are actually more our norm. We spend more right. time in bear markets than bull for us. So. That's true. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so I think you, you mentioned some tips already. But yeah, so what would you advise the entrepreneurs who are considering to enter this field or who are struggling right now? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. You have to be very honest with yourself as an entrepreneur. Is what you're building actually a good idea or not? That, that's a subjective one to some extent, but it's actually objective too on a range of ways to measure it. I've seen some incredibly wacky business ideas in the crypto sector that are just bonkers when you actually objectively look at them. There is no clear, obvious way that this thing will scale up to anything. It's not obviously serving any real world purpose. And very often they're, they're driven by people chasing the money. They've seen NFTs, they've seen the NFT boom. They think there's a high demand for a particular kind of animal NFT collectible collection to be issued because Absolutely, we now need pandas, for example, because the Ethereum merge happened yesterday and it had a panda in the ASCII on, on the block. 
Clearly, therefore, a panda collection is absolutely going to change the world and add value. It's not remotely speculative driven that I can buy this and sell this onto a greater fall further down the line. You know, that's so from a founder perspective, look, don't chase the money. Ch chase providing something that's actually going to serve a real world need and value. Look for problems in the world and look to what can I actually do that solves a problem. If you can't articulate, here's a problem and here's how what I'm going to do is going to solve that problem, you probably haven't got a good idea. So that's an objective metric on this. If you can't summarize how your business is going to solve problems for other people and that there's going to be a need for that for what you're building, you probably aren't building something that's needed. And building something that's not needed will just be a waste of resources, time, and eventually you'll, you'll, you'll close it down. So that's probably the top thing I would say at the out outset before you even get into the rest of it, which is you have to be sure what you're doing has got a need. And if it hasn't, that doesn't necessarily mean give up. It means you need to adapt what you've got. So I'll give you an example. When we started out, we were all focused on this one use case, which was we're going to enable the leasing of the network tokens. And then we thought, great, now there's other, this is a huge use case. You know, why, I bet you there'll be lots of other token leasing going on. It could be a massive thing in gaming eventually one day. It's not right now, but could be. And so our initial assumption was we're going to do token leasing across everything, lease everything eventually. And it's going to be awesome. Everyone will be able to make passive income off their digital assets and lend them around. And as it come to pass, but also we realized there was no demand for it back then. We started talking to people and realizing there's no projects planning to do this. So they don't need what we are building out if we do this. So then we took a step back having done a network. We've got a network token called Checks. We did an issuance of that during the last crypto winter, and it's going to be a gateway token for us to interface to the DeFi space long-term as well. And uh, a big part of that was, wow, the issuance process is really complex, really expensive, feels really risky. You've got to put KYC in place, AML. You've got to have all these things that had never been done before. And that enabled us to go, if we've had these problems with, with issuance, other people are going to have these problems. So let's build something to make that an easy process streamlined for them. And by then we'd also build an exchange. So we had secondary capability. And that's a good example of pivoting your strategy away from something and going, objectively looking here, what we're building is not going to be needed. So let's not do it. And the third bit of advice I would generally give to, I think, to, to entrepreneurs generally in this environment is you have to be tenacious. You can't simply accept no from anybody. Just because a VC fund, some fat alcoholic VC who's been drinking way too much during the bull market and has made a load of money shilling some network token that's happened to hit the jackpot, and they now think they're the big I am because their fund's a multi-billion dollar level, just because they say to you, oh, your network token doesn't, or whatever you're doing doesn't fit within our philosophy and thesis of what's going on, does not mean what you're doing is not very smart and going to change the world and be a massive project further down the line. Don't let them tell you just off that and that no turn, turn you away from pursuing this at all. It, you've got to be tenacious and be able to say, okay, they disagree with us. I disagree with them. But that's not to say they're not going to, some, a lot of them are very smart and a lot of them are going to say to you, yeah, actually... These are the reasons why you're flawed. And so you have to be able to take in that feedback and take to heart valid critical feedback as well. But that will help part of that process and journey of shaping out what you're doing to something that's powerful. And at that point, then obviously fundraising is the other big one, which is to say, again, it goes, flows on from what we just talked about, which is if you're going to raise money in an environment like this, you're not the price setter anymore. You're going to have to accept that it's a challenge. And to some extent, it's about raising what you need to be able to deliver milestones.
You've got to be able to step out and say, we're going to deliver a minimum viable product and it will do these things. And we're going to find some early clients or early commercial traction and users and onboard, depending on what the business is. And we need this much money to do it. And we're just going to keep going out until we find the right investors to back us, whether they're angels or funds or whatever. And uh, yeah, would say based on our own experiences, that's pretty much been our story too. We've pivoted and adapted and refined what we've offered. We never let people who told us we were never going to make it or were worth. We just kept going. And I would say that's exactly what entrepreneurs doing this environment are going to do as well to hit the successful ones. And obviously the unsuccessful ones will just simply give up and walk away and join another company instead. And that's fine too. I love your story and I love the story of Shintai. You guys push through the tough time and you guys want to do things the right way. And I believe that your story can inspire a lot of the upcoming founders. So yeah, so that's it for today's episode. David, thank you so much again for being here with us today. And yeah, so if what's the best way if our listeners want to find more information about Shintai? Yeah, our website's probably not a bad place to start, which is shintai.io, C-H-I-N-T-A-I. And otherwise, we're on Twitter as well, at Shintai Network. And yeah, there should be some some quite interesting news coming our way as we're expecting to get the RMO license soon here, which is uh, the one that enables us to trade secondary as well. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Yeah, exactly. We're going to be one of, I think, only about three firms globally that can do red compliant issuance and secondary out of one of the world's top financial centers. So it's a big deal for sure. It's for, a big deal. But, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we've got that. And because we've got this really big issuance coming out soon, I think that's going to be some pretty big news. So I would encourage anybody who's, who wants to find out a bit more about us. We've got a great community on the DeFi side too. And long term, I would love to start really working with the DeFi sector and interfacing across to it. That That's part of the long term vision. It's just obviously when you're working on the red compliance side, you've got to follow the book every step along the way. But I think the future is very exciting. And yeah, hopefully if any of the listeners want to find out more, then feel free to drop us one on Twitter and we'll happily engage with you. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for joining this episode of SustainerDAO Non-Fungible Talk. This show is brought to you by SustainerDAO, a decentralized protocol that promotes social progress, environmental balance, and economic growth with blockchain technology. I'm your host, Clarice Chiu. And I'm your host, Ling Ning. If you like the content, subscribe and give us a follow on Twitter at SustainerDAO. We also have premium content, including blockchain research, member-exclusive events, and more with NFT Pass Access. For more information, please visit our website, diesel.org.